ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, so I'm not sure there's any segment of ETFs that's had a tougher year so far than ESG. And when I say that, I'm not talking about investment returns. We, we know investment returns have been challenging for most ETFs. What I'm talking about is perception. I feel like ESG has come under attack from all sides this year. Uh, it seems like the media is being much more aggressive in coming after ESG Certainly, the SEC is getting much more aggressive in regulating this space. And I think investors are looking at ESG with a uh, more discerning eye. Now, there are a lot of reasons why I think this is happening. I, I think certainly on the investor side, the fact is energy is outperforming this year. Tech is underperforming. And, of course, energy tends to be underweight and tech overweight in a lot of ESG strategies. That's reintroduced some concerns around the potential underperformance of ESG strategies. And while not much is working in ETFs overall, investors certainly don't want to uh, exacerbate the situation by underperforming. So I think that's causing some perception issues among investors. In terms of the uh, media attention on ESG, I, I think performance is a part of that. But unfortunately, this uh, Russia-Ukraine war, I feel like that sparked a lot of conversation around what exactly constitutes ESG. You, you know, our defense companies that are helping the Ukraine war effort, are those ESG? Uh, what about ETFs that uh, held Russian securities or companies doing a lot of business in Russia? And then even here in the, uh, the U.S., think about a company like Tesla, an electric vehicle company that was recently booted from the S&P 500 ESG index. That generated a lot of debate and attention. So you have the media looking at this, investors looking at this, and then as it pertains to the SEC, I think because of all this debate and attention, the SEC has become much more concerned about the potential for investor confusion here, which that really started last year. But here more recently, like over the past few weeks, the SEC has proposed uh, new rules around ESG fund naming and disclosures. Uh, there have been several high-profile SEC investigations launched around ESG. The bottom line is ESG is getting it from everywhere. And so who better to discuss all of this than Laura Krigger, editor-in-chief at Vetify. She'll join me momentarily to offer uh, her perspective 
And as part of that, we'll also look at what Vetify is, is seeing in terms of uh, ESG interest on their platform this year. So look forward to that. Always love talking ESG with Laura. Also this week, and sticking with the uh, ESG topic, I'll be joined by Wendy Wong, head of sustainable investment partnerships at New York Life Investments. They offer what's called the IQ Dual Impact Suite of ETFs. So these are currently four ETFs which cover healthy hearts, cleaner transport, and gender equality, and clean oceans. And what's unique about these is each ETF takes a portion of their management fees and donates it to a specific cause associated with the ETF's investment theme. So, for example, the Engender Equality ETF donates to an organization called Girls Who Can Code, which aims to increase the number of women in computer science. So we're going to take a look at those ETFs and then also just hear how New York Life views ESG investing overall, which will obviously tie in nicely to my conversation with Laura. And then to close this week, another fantastic guest. I'll be joined by Sonia Fermato, Senior Director at ACA Foreside, who I would say there are few, if any, people who know more about fund distribution than Sonia does. And so we're going to discuss some of the ways fund managers are bringing investment strategies to market, including through mutual fund ETF conversions and active non-transparent ETFs. And we'll also discuss some of the challenges of ETF distribution in general. So great show this week. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Geraci, or you can send comments to etfprime.com. Let's chat with Vetify's Laura Krigger. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. There's a couple of different ways to slice and dice these various ETFs. They can hold what are called total return swaps. Expect the unexpected. Laura, so great having you back on the podcast. Great to be here, Nate. All right, so there is a lot for us to uh, discuss here. I'm sure you're just chomping at the bit, but let's start <laughs> with uh, ESG ETF flows and performance so far this year, just to set the table at least a little bit. Uh, I know you pulled down some data for us. What did you find? Is there anything jumping out at you on uh, either flows or, or performance or both this year? Well, as long as we're setting the table, it's going to be a meager table setting. So far in 2022... ESG ETFs have only brought in $3.4 billion. That's it. And that's fallen off tremendously from 2021, of course. Um, then again, 2021 was also better for performance, and the two are linked, and I'm sure we'll get into that more later. Um, but currently, the total assets into ESG ETFs are over just over $102 billion dollars. Sounds like a lot from a raw numbers perspective. Maybe it is, but then you have to consider that there are $7.1 trillion in assets under management across all U.S. listed ETFs. So that $102 billion, it's just 1%, if that, of the total ETF asset pie. And it tends to be more than that. It tends to be dominated by a handful of very large funds, uh, namely you know, ESGU, ESGE, other broad-based core products that are slotting neatly into model portfolios. Uh, if you look at the median assets under management across all these 200 odd products, the median assets under management is just 54 million. Ugh. So 
it's it's not looking pretty in ESG land right now. Well, well let's do this. And we, we can get into performance. But let me ask you about investor interest on the Vetify platform. And I think, you know, just about every time uh, Tom Hendrickson joins me on the podcast, we like to dive into Vetify's website traffic and, and analytics and try to read the tea leaves on different segments of the ETF market. Mm-hmm. And I always say, I absolutely love this stuff. I feel like it offers such a nice window into what investors are researching and thinking about. And so when you and I were kicking around uh, topics for the podcast this week, you noted that you could pull some of this data from an ESG perspective. And I- I've got to tell you, I'm very curious to hear what, what you have here. So, so what did you find? And then maybe we come back to some of the reasons uh, on, on the flows here. Sure. Well, we're seeing engagement and traffic across all themes and topics related to ESG significantly down year to date. Part of that is because, well, you know, January tends to be a high month and, you know, we're entering a slow summer month season and all of that, right? People are at the beach and not necessarily researching about solar ETFs. That said, the trend really is undeniable and unmistakable. Traffic to something like alternative energy equities as a theme is down 54%. Traffic to clean energy as a theme, that's down 67% and so on and so forth. So it's really been uh, remarkable how steep the fall off from um, the heady highs of earlier this year, or even 2021, um, has been for ESG traffic, uh, or excuse me, ESG-related themes. Now, individual ETFs have held up better than others, but even they have seen, you know, if you, you look ticker by ticker, even they have seen a fall off in research interest. So, for example, ESGV, that's the Vanguard uh, U.S. stock ESG ETF, That's the most searched for ESG ETF on our website, yet traffic to it has fallen off more than 50%. Second most popular is iClean. That's kind of like a household name, right? One of the iShares clean energy ETFs. At one point, it was more popular on our website than ARKK or or Bitto, the the ProShares um, Bitcoin ETF. Year to date, Traffic there is flagging almost, 50, you know, a little over 50% as well. So there's definitely been a pullback in traffic and interest there. Now, I have a feeling that you're going to ask whether energy, you know, traditional energy ETFs have seen a spike in traffic, you know, kind of like a seesaw, right? Clean energy is down. Oil ETFs must be up. That's not actually what we're seeing. Research interest in Oil ETFs like USO and UNG and DBO, these have uh, all seen relatively muted engagement year to date. I think you see that in the flows, uh, UNG and USO especially have seen negative flows year to date. So I, I don't think the the readership interest or the story that's driving the readership interest into oil ETFs or the lack thereof has changed much over the last six months. Um, there's still an energy crisis going on. There's still, you know, some troubles in the industry and a challenged industry. So that's not necessarily where the interest for readers has has lied. Uh, you know, when you look at commodities, uh, which have seen a significant uptick in research interest over the last three or four months, the interest is gravitating towards broad-based funds and agricultural commodities ETFs, not towards oil ETFs or, for that matter, uh, clean energy ETFs and ESG ETFs as a whole. That's No, that's interesting on the energy side. But I guess 
on the ESG side, if we combine mm. the drop-off in interest on the Vetify platform with flows that have, have fallen off a bit, I'm curious, what do you make of all this? I mean, what, 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 is it everything that I was mentioning at the top, except, you know, those things are actually having the opposite effect? Like, like because of all the, what I would call negative attention and debate, maybe that's causing advisors and, and investors not to research ESG ETFs and invest in ESG ETFs. What, what do you make of this? I think that there's some of that for sure. Uh, but you and I are a little in the thick of what that media buzz is right now. And, uh, you know, we're, we're extremely online, as the youths would say. Uh, and so we see this debate happening up close and center uh, or front close and center. Um, but in reality, like where, you know, uh, the, the advisor is sitting down with clients or someone, I'm not so sure they're as privy to that or as um, motivated by that debate as, you know, maybe you or I would be. We're very close to it. Um, what I think is really perhaps the, the struggle or the challenge for ESG ETFs right now is that they comprise largely of large cap growth tech stocks. And that is a sector that not many people want to be in right now because of interest rate rises, right? So if you look at clean energy ETFs, renewable power ETFs, they tend to have um, you know, growthier tilts. And this is not a place you want to be in as interest rates are rising. Uh, more um, on top of that, uh, so inflation is benefiting traditional energy uh, ETFs, lifting prices once more, making oil and gas stocks look more attractive. But it's not necessarily, like I was saying, uh, the oil itself, not the oil futures, but things like oil services and, and energy infrastructure. That's where a lot of the interest is lying. So um, I think a lot of it has to do with performance. A, you know, you can't discount that. What you said at the top, performance has been very uh, lackluster for the ESG ETF sector this year. Uh, I wonder if maybe we've seen ESG ETFs as a whole, uh, which have fallen, by the way, year to date, 14%. I wonder if we've seen them sort of hit a bottom. Um, this past month, they've rebounded about 4%. Uh, so maybe that's just a momentary bump on the way you know, down farther, or maybe that is indicating a, a resurging, um, you know, a, a, a real rebound. Who knows? We'll see. Yeah, I just wonder if these ESG considerations do take a backseat during a bear market. Like it's easy to yeah. to focus on ESG when everything's going well, but when the market turns, uh, you know, there are some more important things. Like here, just while you were uh, were chatting. Uh, I pulled the returns from two of the largest ESG ETFs. So uh, the iShares ESG Aware MSCI USA ETF ticker ESGU, which I think you mentioned earlier, that's down 22% year to date. The Vanguard ESG US Stock ETF ticker ESGV, that's down 26% year to date. SPY, S&P 500, is down 21%. So you can see a little bit of a difference there. And I do think, I know we talk a lot about this on, uh, for example, active ETFs. Y you know, we can peel back the onion and, and look for different angles and stories, but at the end of the day, performance does drive, um, <laughs> you know, everything in the investment world. And so I, maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe it does come back to that. I think it does. And I think it, uh, you know, you can't discount exposure, 
right? Exposures matter as well. And these funds, if you look at the worst performing ESG ETFs out there, they are the most growthy ETFs out there. They're the ones that have large cap growth in their names. Um, They tend to be uh, you know, the ESG NASDAQ ETFs. NASDAQ is a very growthy oriented index. And then you slam uh, or you, you put ESG on top of it. Those are not performing very well today. The broad, large cap growth ESG ETFs, like I said. Now, there are a couple of, uh, you know, there are a couple of ETFs that are getting flows despite maybe challenged performance, uh, you know, there, there are a couple of bright spots. One bright spot would be the Paris Aligned ETFs. They've taken in a couple of them uh, now or on the market. We've seen from iShares and State Street. They're taking in a couple of hundred million dollars. Uh, we have GPAL from Goldman. You know, most of this money is coming from week one flows or from seed. So there isn't much in the way of organic movement happening yet. Um, but it is something worth noting that there are some ESG ETFs that have uh, they're in the black right now. And then outside of ETFs from from the big three, we're seeing indie funds, to be honest, taking off like FRDM, right? Freedom uh, 100 ETF. uh, That's taken in the most money of any quote unquote indie ESG ETF here to date, 115 million. Hot on the heels is Goldman's GSFP, the the future planet uh, ETF. That's taken in about 100 million. And here I got it. I got to share this success story because this was long in the making. Global X's Conscious Companies ETF. This is ticker KRMA. This has been on the market for, gosh, over a decade without barely any flows. And now it's taken in $86 million just in uh, the last couple of months. So um, I, I think that's a really interesting sleeper uh, fund or sleeper hit, right? Um, so and then finally, the carbon ETFs. Uh, you, you can't mention a roundup of, of the ESG ETF space without mentioning that the carbon ETFs like uh, KRBN and KUEA and KCCA um, have really seen a lot of trading activity. Now, KRBN has lost assets year to date, but the regional products, KEUA specifically, the European regional product, that's brought in close to $80 million, So. I love the uh, Global X ETF reference. Those are the types of gems you will only find on ETF Prime. I, I have to mention, um, <laughs> Laura. One area I have to get your perspective on is the, uh, the the regulatory side of things. And as I noted, the SEC is now spending a lot more time focused on ESG. And a, a few weeks ago, they proposed some new rules around ESG fund naming and disclosures. It was much broader than that, but ESG was certainly in the crosshairs on the proposal. Now, you are the ETF Prime resident regulatory expert, so (laughs) I'm very curious to hear your take on all this. So we we have a few minutes left here. I'm just going to hand this over to you. I mean, what did you think about the SEC uh, getting more aggressive here in, 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 in this proposal? In short, good ideas, difficult to put into practice and difficult to to make an impact with. So there's actually two proposals on the docket right now. The first one would, like you mentioned, uh, expands the scope of the so-called names rule uh, to also cover funds that have an ESG focus. So the names rule would basically, or the basically says two decades old at this point, if a fund, if an ETF or a mutual fund suggests by its name that it focuses on a particular geography or industry or investment type or so on, then that fund has to have at least 80% of its securities 
in uh, assets or 80% of its assets and securities that match up with that focus. Uh, in fact, our new contributor, Dan Micah, wrote a great piece for us on Monday about the expansion of the names rule and how it might impact thematic ETFs. So the long and the short of it is, if this proposal comes to pass, then a fund that is considering ESG factors alongside other inputs like you know, size or geography or industry or whatever, they wouldn't necessarily be allowed to use the term ESG, sustainable, or low carbon on the nameplate unless 80% of its securities matched up to that ESG theme. So it's kind of an idea, um, or the, the idea behind it is to cut down on greenwashing in the industry, which is, you know, a growing problem. However, in this case, I'm not so sure that naming is the issue uh, here. The issue is that if I'm an investor, I buy an ESG ETF and then I get Exxon in it, I'm going to be kind of mad because what the issuer is doing is selecting based on ESG factors and ESG's social and governance scores might be good, but its environmental score is low. But me as the investor, I'm thinking only in terms of environmental. So that's kind of a problem of definitions and investor expectations versus issuer and index implementation. So that kind of gets to the second proposal which is that funds that claim to use ESG as part of their investment process would have to disclose more information about precisely what strategy they're using. So, for example, funds that say that they use ESG uh, would be required to fill out a standardized table and then provide information and data about uh, the greenhouse gas emissions produced by the companies and the issuers inside their portfolio. So I think that's a good step. More disclosure is is likely going to be useful here. That said, not every ESG ETF out there uses greenhouse gas emissions as a metric for selecting their portfolio companies. So there's a lot of social-based ETFs out there that don't. So that's once again getting back to the problem of equating ESG with environmental or eco-friendly or so on. So if investors uh, want an ESG fund that's environmentally friendly, that's fine. They should go for it. But we as an industry should probably ditch the ESG moniker and move towards language like Paris aligned or low carbon or carbon transition. I think that's going to be more useful for investors. So, Well, and I know that's something your colleague Dave Nodig has talked about for a long time. He really dislikes the mm-hmm. ESG moniker and, and you know thinks there's a better way to inform investors and educate investors what some of these funds are doing. From, from my perspective, we'll see what happens with the, uh, th- these SEC proposals. I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with some of these uh, investigations. I mean, we've seen several high-profile situations recently where the SEC is looking into how fund companies are marketing ESG to investors. So the SEC has been probing DWS for a while. They're now apparently investigating Goldman Sachs. Uh, you may have seen they recently settled with BNY Mellon for uh, misleading mm-hmm. claims around ESG funds. And it seems like the thought is, uh, at least from my perspective, this is just the beginning of a you know, more aggressive SEC in this space. They are working hard to dissuade other fund companies from, from greenwashing. So I, I just think it's going to be interesting to see what the outcome of some of these investigations are. I mean, I think at a very simple level, it gets back to if you are doing something or you're saying you're doing something within a fund, you better be doing it. Right. Whatever that is, Mm -hmm. whether that's ESG or value, momentum, whatever that is. I think ultimately that's the crux of it. But if if you look at some of Gensler's comments recently, I mean, ESG is 
it is a focus. It's not like he's out there doing Twitter videos on value investing. I, I completely agree. This is something we, that is not going to go away. This issue is definitely a, a focus area for the SEC. And in fact, uh, if you, you know, you're hearing this and you feel very strongly about it, proposals are now in the comment period for the next 60 days. So if you have strong opinions, go and make your voice heard. So. Well, Laura, always uh, love our conversations. Seriously, nobody covers this stuff better. I mean, ESG, the regulatory side, you're the best at this stuff. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. That was Laura Krigger, Editor-in-Chief at Vetify. And now a word from iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest. iShares sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. I'm now joined by Wendy Wong, head of sustainable investment partnerships at New York Life Investments, who currently offers 28 ETFs with over $4 billion in assets. Those are offered under the Index IQ brand. And one of the suites they rolled out last year is what's called their IQ Dual Impact Suite of ETFs, which we will be discussing this week. Uh, Wendy is now on the line with me from New York. Wendy, it's a pleasure. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you so much. Okay, so I think one of the biggest debates around ESG investing right now is whether it actually makes any difference, right? Whether it actually benefits society in any way. And we can certainly get into uh, that as it pertains to the investment side. But what's interesting about what you're doing with this dual impact suite is we know there's a tangible benefit because you're taking a portion of the proceeds from the ETF management fees and donating it to specific charitable causes. So before we get into discussing uh, some broader ESG topics, uh, I'd love for you to highlight these ETFs. And, and perhaps you can start by just giving us some background on where this idea came from and why Index IQ decided to uh, pursue these. Yeah, sure thing. So New York Life Investments is a multi-boutique model. And one of our investment boutiques, our biggest one actually, is based in Europe called Candrium. They have $165 billion in AUM and 25 years of experience in sustainable investing. So they've been doing this a long time. In fact, they launched their first sustainable investing fund in 1996, so way before it became um, you know, popular and more of a thing. And they were also an early signatory of the UNPRI in 2006. And since they joined New York Life Investments, we've been looking for ways to bring their expertise to the U.S. And among other ESG funds that they've built for New York Life Investments, for Index IQ, which, as you mentioned, is our ETF business, they've built a dual-impact ETF. And like you said, these dual-impact ETFs, 
do have a dual impact. So it combines the potential for financial gain. We are an investment manager, of course, um, through impact investing. So, and all while helping to inspire change. So we'd like to think of it as a double bottom line approach to ESG investing, or even a simpler way to think about it is me-focused returns and me-focused good. So for the me-focused returns, each of these dual impact ETFs provide a targeted thematic investment uh, thesis, which seeks to deliver financial performance to investors. So we always start with that. And then we work with a nonprofit partner for each of these ETFs to leverage their expertise to create the index. And then, as you mentioned, there is definitely an impact component. So that's where the we-focused good comes in. So New York Life Investments, we reinvest a portion of the funds management fees to these nonprofits who uses them to fund specific programs that are related to the ETF strategy. So we want to be able to measure the impact of our support. All right. So the four ETFs in this dual impact suite are, uh, let me go through these. One, the IQ Healthy Hearts ETF, ticker H-A-R-T. There's the IQ Cleaner Transport ETF, ticker C-L-N-R. The IQ and Gender Equality ETF, ticker EQUL, and then the IQ Clean Oceans ETF, ticker OCEN. Uh, maybe give us a quick snapshot on each of these. Uh, tell us what these hold and the, uh, the the charitable cause associated with each. Yeah, sure thing. So the IQ Healthy Hearts ETF um, was developed with the American Heart Association. American Heart Association wants people to live longer and healthier lives without heart disease. So heart investing companies relevant to those initiatives, um, research and programming. And it supports the American Heart Association's Social Impact Fund, which works to address barriers of health inequality. For the IQ and gender equality, um, that's with Girls Who Code. Um, Equal is designed to offer investors exposure to U.S. companies that have demonstrated a commitment to gender equality. And then Girls Who Code uses our contribution to support their free program for girls in third to 12th grade um, so they can learn more about coding and careers in technology. Um, IQ Cleaner Transport ETF. Um, provides exposure to global companies. So the Equal is our only domestic um, ETF. The rest are global. Mm-hmm. Cleaner provides exposure to global companies that support the transition to more environmentally and more efficient transportation ta- technologies. Um, so as people want to rely less on fossil fuels, this invests in electric vehicles, but also bikes, buses, trains, and also the entire technology and value chain needed to support all of this. So that includes like the electric grid, the motors, the batteries, the underlying technology to make all this work. And we work with the National Wildlife Federation. Um, They're they're going to be using our contribution to um, advance their climate solution programs to create a zero carbon future to protect wildlife and their habitats. And then finally, the IQ Clean Oceans ETF offers exposure to global companies that help protect and achieve a cleaner ocean through less pollution, um, so less plastics in the ocean, and then increased resource efficiency, so there's less um, damage to the oceans. We developed this to align with Oceana. They are the largest international advocacy ocean um, organization focused on ocean conservation. And they're using our contribution to protect and restore the ocean and reduce pollution from single-use plastics. Okay, so just to recap the, uh, the, the charitable cause that's associated with each ETF, the Healthy Hearts ETF is associated with the American Heart Association, the Engender Equality ETF with Girls Who Can Code, 
the Cleaner Transport ETF with the National Wildlife Federation, and then the Clean Oceans ETF with Oceana. Um, I, I'm curious, how did you decide who would be the recipients of the donations? What, what was that process like? So we believe that partnering with leading nonprofit organizations that have expertise in their respective fields will help us build an investment solution that can be more efficient and more effective in realizing meaningful change. Um, and that was important. So each of these nonprofit organizations are expertise in their respective fields. They help influence the product design so that each ETF is aligned with the organization's principles. As an example, we learned a lot from National Wildlife Federation about how damaging emissions from fossil fuels are. Globally, transportation um, and the emissions from, trans from uh, transportation accounts for up to 20% of total emissions each year. And then we want to make sure that, you know, we want to make a real desire to make an impact. So we want to make sure that there's a measurable way of, of being able to measure this. So we spent also a lot of time learning about what they're trying to achieve, what kind of impact they want to have, how are they measuring their success, how can we support and amplify that. And then, of course, cultural fit and integrity are really important, too. These are meant to be long-term partnerships. So as an example, Girls Who Code are working to fix the gender gap in technology. Fewer than one in five computer science graduates are women, which is lower. It's trending lower than it has been in, in previous years. And considering how widespread technology is, we use it in our schools, we use it in our everyday life, in every industry, in every company, you know, that's, that's concerning. Wendy, how do you see these ETFs being used in portfolios? And perhaps this will get us down the, the path towards talking a little more broadly about ESG. But to, to me, as I look at these, these look primarily like satellite holdings, right? They're thematic ETFs. So I guess uh, equal is a bit more broad or diverse if you look at the underlying holdings. But how do you see these being used in a portfolio? Yeah, I think I, you know, I, I agree. I think that th there's a lot of reasons that a satellite exposure to impact investments, to these thematic investments, can be used by a client in his or portfolio. Um, you know, we see you know a, a, an increase of values-driven consumers in general who use their dollars to influence change. You know, 68% of consumers say they consider a brand's social reputation before buying from them. So, similar to how an investor might seek out or avoid certain companies based on a company's views or actions, an investor could also use an impact fund to express a point of view. And then for clients who are completely new to thematic investing, this could be a way to test the waters. And then finally, all of these ETFs are, are very diverse. Um, so it's a way to increase diversification with sector beta. Can you talk more about your first point? Because a question that I'm sure is on some people's mind is if someone really believes in these causes, uh, why not just donate directly to these various organizations, right? Why pair that donation with their investments? I'd love to have you expand on, on that a bit. Yeah, I mean, investors certainly can, and we actually hope that people continue to support their favorite causes with donations and time. But going back to the dual impact of nature of these ETFs, an investor can tap into a thematic fund based on a broad-based trend that's directly aligned with and supports important issues relating to health and well-being, gender equality, and the environment. Um, so, you know, it, it's just a way, if you're going to invest, it's a way of putting your money to work in two different ways. Um, so, you know, I'll give you another example. The Healthy Hearts ETF, the ticker is H-A-R-T, invests in companies who are working to treat and prevent heart disease. So heart disease, unfortunately, 
number one killer in the U.S. One American dies every 36 seconds from heart disease. That's staggering. And 80% of heart disease is preventable through a healthier and being more active. So heart is tapping into two investment opportunities here. One, treatments for heart disease are going to continue to be in high demand because it's a leading cause of death in both the U.S. and the world, actually. And our population is aging. Baby boomers, Gen X, everyone is getting a little older. And um, so they're going to need treatment for heart disease, but they're also realizing that there is a direct correlation between diet, activity, and health. So heart invests in bio and pharma companies, but also companies who are encouraging better eating and who offer products and services to be active. And then there's the impact component, of course. So the social impact fund um, is addressing healthy inequalities. So not only you know, making sure people have access to medical services, but also food, housing, transportation, that all contributes to someone's well-being. And our support has accelerated this growth by nearly three times. So they used to be only, they used to have 33 investees in only five cities to 88 investees in 15. Wendy, if we put uh, the support for these various causes aside, I mean, clearly that has a direct, tangible impact, and that, that's a key component of this dual impact suite. I'd love to hear just more broadly how New York Life views sustainable investing o- overall. Do you view it as a potential alpha generator? Do you think that it really makes a difference in moving the ball forward on in- environmental and, and social issues and, and corporate governance? Because as I alluded to at the top, and, and I covered this a little bit in my previous segment, this is a big topic of debate right now uh, among investors. You know, ESG is getting a lot of attention. I think investors and advisors are spending a lot of time researching the space and, you know, trying to get their, their, their head around it. So, so what, what do you view as the rationale for sustainable investing overall? Well, what we're seeing today is that investors are demanding more when it comes to ESG investment approaches. And rightly so. In particular, they're demanding more from the companies in which they're investing. We've learned through our own research that we've done proprietary research on this, that one out of every two investors are inclined to invest with values in the same way they might buy or boycott companies because the company might have, um, you know, a negative impact uh, on the environment or maybe they're not treating their employees well. We don't see this trend reversing. So you and I both have kids. And you probably already see the kids like they're already questioning and they do a lot more research on companies and brands than you and I both did at the same age. I don't want to speak for you, but (laughs) no, that's correct. (laughs) (laughs) And investing used to be based on an asset class, sector or geography, but the world and the companies have become increasingly more global. So advisors and investors are thinking about how, you know, how they construct their investment portfolios differently. So what this means for us is we'll continue to work with our investment boutiques, including Candrium, again, 25 years of ESG investing experience, to continue to, adi- to, to continue to identify key investment trends so investors can tap into it and grow their portfolio. So at the core, we are an investment management company with a company with a, with a parent, long history, 177 years at New York Life. So we'll continue working with our investments, boutiques, and all of that. Um, you know, to make sure that we build investment solution that fits the needs of advisors and investors. But we're going to continue to approach everything with a lot of thoroughness and a lot of integrity. Like, you don't get to be 177 years old without, you know, doing things the right way. You're not Candrium, who has 25 years of experience, you know, who, you know, you, you have to do things um, in the utmost, uh, with utmost integrity. 
And New York Life, our parent company itself, has a deep commitment to corporate responsibility and education. And both of these tenets fit perfectly with, with what we believe in in ESG investing. Well, and one thing I'll add to some of your comments there, and again, this was something I, I discussed a little bit in a prior segment, is there are a lot of investors concerned about, quote unquote, greenwashing. And I've said for a long time, I do think the thematic approach, the, the more targeted approach will resonate much better with investors. Because again, I think it's easier for them to get their, their head around exactly what these funds are doing and, and what they hold. So, uh, you know, clearly that's what you're doing here with the, the dual impact suite. But Wendy, really enjoyed hearing your perspective this week. Uh, great topic. And thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Nate. That was Wendy Wong, Head of Sustainable Investment Partnerships at New York Life Investments. Introducing Capital Group's new actively managed ETFs, a new suite of ETFs brought to you by a company with a proven track record of long-term results, a 90-year history of navigating ups and downs and everything behind it. Give your portfolio active management at the core. Explore what's behind our new active ETFs at capitalgroup.com slash ETFs. American Funds Distributors, Inc., member FINRA. I'm now joined by Sonia Fermato, Senior Director at ACA Foresight, who, if you're not familiar with Foresight, we'll talk more about what they do here in a moment, but they pretty much handle it all on the ETF side. Everything from helping launch an ETF to marketing and compliance, back-end operations, they really do it all. And Sonia herself has deep expertise, specifically in fund distribution, and not just ETFs. She has expertise across a variety of product structures. Basically, her wheelhouse is helping bring investment strategies to market in the best way possible. And I should note that prior to Foresight, she was with Fidelity Investments, where she consulted on product positioning and marketing. And she actually led the build out of the Fidelity Funds Network Distributor Service Model. Uh, Sonia is now on the line with me from Boston. Sonia, welcome to the podcast. Nay, thank you. Awesome to be here today. Really appreciate you having me on, and um, thank you for all the, the kind words. I'm really excited to, uh, to share some of my insights today with you and, and everyone on the line. Well, yeah, and I think for those of us who are in the ETF space or pretty close to it, I, I think many of us are at least somewhat familiar with the uh, Foresight name, but I'm guessing there are a decent number of listeners who have never heard of Foresight before. So l let's start with what exactly Foresight does. Give us the high-level overview, and then we can certainly drill down uh, in into the ETF side of things. Excellent. Happy to do so. So um, as you kind of hear Foresight and ACA, so I come from Heritage Foresight. Um, I am right now, though, Team ACA. We're all Team ACA. So um, ACA from a 30,000-foot level is a, a leading governance, risk, and compliance, or GRC advisor in financial services. 
we empower clients to reimagine GRC and protect and grow their business. So as you hear the two names, the merger brought together um, our two great organizations with, you know, loads of experienced professionals and a full suite of uh, GRC advisory, technology, managed services, analytics, distribution, which, you know, I'm looking forward to speaking out today, and other outsourcing solutions to the financial services industry. So we're a firm that has over uh, 1,250 employees, 18 offices globally, and we serve over 6,300 clients. And I think the most important thing as we talk to our clients today is nothing's changed as we've become ACA or ACA foresight or, or, or such. Um, it's really the focus on um, kind of providing that excellence and servicing our clients. So, you know, diving a little deeper, Nate, into ETFs, um, give you a little bit of color and folks on the phone also that may not know foresight. We are the largest third-party distributor with over uh, 1.3 trillion in assets under distribution as of the end of April, um, you know, with ETF specifically, we have 180 billion in assets under distribution, um, over 700 funds, and 156 um, unique brands we work with. So I'll stop there, and um, hopefully that gives everybody a little more color as we jump into some great conversations here. Yeah, and in terms of uh, what ACA Foresight handles on the ETF side, can, can you offer a little more detail there? I mean, I mentioned that you, you pretty much do it all, but what are some of the things that that, that entails? Yeah, no, and I think it's a great question that I, I, I think people, um, when they hear foresight or a principal underwriter or a legal underwriter, and that's the, the predominant service that you're really working with us um, when you're outsourcing um, or partnering, I should say, with foresight. So that really, um, we have a, a solid ETF um, operations group under Darren Levesque, and that team really is is responsible for facilitating um, and coordinating all the authorized participants uh, participant agreements in the primary market. They're working on um, the creation and um, redemption, kind of verification and confirmation of those orders, uh, the electronic transfer of those AP orders. We also have a huge um, marketing and advertising review group. Um, compliance, again, is in our DNA. So they're reviewing, approving, and, and filing that information with FINRA. I think... Beyond the legal underwriting, which is the nuts and bolts of what we're doing, what we build around that as as folks are are launching or um, or kind of you know moving forward with an ETF is is we do other pieces of the puzzle as well, um, you know rep licensing, fund officers. We can help with RIA setup and compliance, and then the consulting and the and really the product partnerships where I get involved a lot is, you know, beyond what we're doing um, with a signed contract, we feel it's important that we partner with our clients to help them grow. So my role really, and I'll I'll jump into that a little, is making sure we're understanding what they're going through. We're there in the beginning. You know, what are you thinking through? Can we introduce you to the right people on, you know, the APA landscape um, with other service providers that are on the other side of the equation, you know, the, the custodians, the admins, the relationships we have there, the exchanges, uh, legal counsel. So we are kind of intertwined within the industry. And, you know, I definitely love to talk about distribution. So when you're, when you're thinking about products in, you know, even beyond an ETF, it's really necessary to understand that um, what, what it comes down to, whatever you build, you have to be behind it 100%. 
so that you can um, invest in the growth of that and understand as the landscape changes, too, that you have to morph with that. And, and as an organization, you have to be on board to, uh, to put the resources in. Who is typically a client for your ETF services? Is there any commonality among who you work with in terms of size or other attributes, or do you pretty much work with everyone? No, great question. And I, I, I think, you know, what's interesting is we work with everyone. It is from, you know, partnering with various series trusts, you know, U.S. banks, the titles, ETC, advisor shares, and the clients that may come under them that are, uh, you know, an RIA that is is launching a, a, you know, a a specific strategy for their clients and then looking to grow that broader to the the broad players, you know, the – the John Hancock's, the Putnam's, um, you know, to the to the interesting um, niche players uh, today's day and age, you know, commodities, Tucrium, you know, Grayscale, um, as well as Engine Number One, Bond Blocks. You know, you look at also structures. American Century first to launch the um, you know active uh, semi-transparent. Uh, thematic small players, more the round hill who are, you know, helping their investors express kind of their vision of the future. So we really work with everyone and we, you know, our, our passion is behind helping them succeed. Um, but what they might need might be different things from Foresight and, and we're ready to customize that for, for clients um, as they want to move forward. All right. So given what Foresight does and certainly your specific role you have a front row seat to pretty much everything occurring within the ETF industry. And so I, I, I thought I'd ask you about a few areas in particular that I think are going to be right in your wheelhouse because they pertain cool. to ETF distribution. And I want to start with mutual fund to ETF conversions. So from my perspective, these appear to be picking up steam. Uh, of course, DFA has been the, the biggest player here, but we've seen conversions from J.P. Morgan, uh, Motley Fool, I saw here recently, Harbor, uh, uh, among others. What are you seeing here right now? How, how important is this particular distribution channel? Yeah, great question. And I think it's one of the questions that we have definitely, you know, across our um, organization have heard from our clients. And, and, you know, what we hear from our clients, we like to respond with, okay, how can we help you? So, yes, the marketplace is attracting kind of, interest in ETFs and and all types of managers. Obviously, they want to come to market and, you know, scale is is very important. So with the initial, you know, we've been working with a lot of different uh, clients and we've had that front row seat during those conversions, you know, Guinness Atkinson back in, in March of 2021, and then others that have come, Motley Fool, like you said, just at the end of the year, and then a couple others we've worked with in, you know, the beginning of 2022, Convergence, Innovative, I think DFA and, and JP Morgan are the ones that are bringing the kind of momentum behind with the assets. I mean, I think as of today or as of, um, you know, the end of May, it's almost 39 billion has been brought over, um, to the ETF industry from, you know, historical mutual funds. Now, that being said, um, you know, I don't, I don't feel personally that mutual funds are going anywhere. They have their place in the marketplace, but where the growth is and what we're seeing is, is definitely across ETF. ETFs based on, um, you know, their potential benefits to investors and the industry with, you know, interday trading, liquidity, tax efficiency and such. So, 
you know, when we look at talking to clients um, about mutual fund ETF conversions, I like to take a step back and really say, listen, we have heard you. We have seen what's going on. A couple things you need to think about. And it really comes down to um, a framework that we've really continued to hone out um, as we're talking to clients. So there's your strategic analysis, there's your governance piece, and then your compliance and operational um, considerations pillar. And each of them brings something different, Nate. It's really the strategic analysis is those initial considerations that you really have to think through before you go down the road of thinking just because the ETF wrapper is you know, being successful, it doesn't mean it's going to be successful for you or for what you're bringing to the marketplace from that mutual fund. So, you know, a couple of things. Um, you know, can the investment strategy be supported by the wrapper? Um, what is the, the current intermediary uh, breakdown or footprint? And is that going to pour it over? You know, you're not going to be automatically available at Merrill Lynch in an ETF uh, because you are in the mutual fund, and there's going to be some disruption with the advisors. So you're going to have to think through all of these things prior to even moving forward. Um, you know, what's the share class structure? You know, if you have six R shares and your focus is 401ks, it may not be the right wrapper to move forward with, and, and you may lose folks in transition. Um, you know, the government's, the governance piece, the really the evaluating and, and kind of preparing and communicating all filter around kind of what's the conversion mechanism going to be. Um, you know, do I need a shareholder vote? Uh, you know, board approval and, and keeping the board apprised of everything as you're moving through. And it's really about communication, communication, communication. And that's also going to take all the filings you're going to need to do. Um, and then, you know, navigating, I think, and, and executing upon, um, you know, all the things that I think people hear about really are like fractional shares and direct shareholders. Well, there's more, as I said earlier, with this framework. And you're also complying with new ETF-specific rules. If you haven't managed an ETF, it's a whole new ecosystem out there. So just as folks coming from maybe more of the institutional into the retail market for a product, coming into the ETF ecosystem, you've got the primary and secondary market. And a lot of things new to folks that you have to get familiar with and you have to be um, sure you have the right people and resources and partners to, to make that happen. You mentioned long-winded answer on that one. No, it's fantastic stuff. I'm curious. You mentioned uh, 401k plans. How big of a hurdle is that for mutual fund to ETF conversions? Because you also mentioned mutual funds are not going anywhere, and we know that 401k plans—that's a huge distribution platform for mutual funds. I guess my question is: Do you think that that puts a cap on the level of conversions we'll ultimately see, or do you expect 401k plans to? you know, slowly uh, incorporate ETFs more, and then that'll, you know, open up that distribution channel. Just how do you see that playing out? No, great question. And I think it's a mix. So I would say right now, when you look at 401k plans, you know, the, the platforms really aren't, you know, kind of set up the record keeping platforms, maybe to support it, maybe through a self-directed brokerage or, or something along those lines. And really, when you look at ETFs in, you know, a, a, a qualified plan, there's not really that kind of tax efficiency that's as needed in a, in a you know, kind of a uh, taxable account. So there's differences in what the end investor is really benefiting from um, with this. Now, with the wrapper benefits, 
well, when you look at 401ks as well, there's, you know, a whole host of, of things going on that we need to think through um, from other vehicles. So, yes, mutual funds have been predominant. There's been also SMA, you know, I don't want to go off into a tangent, but there's been also other products growing, SMA, CIT. So there's a whole, um, you know, marketplace out there that's bringing that lower cost or scale or, or personalization already to, um, you know, 401k plans. Does that mean ETFs won't be successful? No, definitely not. I think there are definitely the ETF issuers out there and, and the, the, the proponents of the wrapper are going to continue to make strides in that marketplace. But I do think, though, mutual funds, they serve a role, they are, uh, you know, a solid offering and are able to deliver to that market. I mean, if you look at my 401k, it's all mutual funds. It's, it's you know, there's not a position right now. So I don't think we're going to see, you know, half the assets leave mutual funds. They're still going to be a predominant vehicle in that space. They're going to give up some room to, like it is now on the, you know, strategic plan side to the SMA, CITs, and then slowly ETFs will make their way into that at first, you know, with the, with the brokerage window. And then as part of the plan lineup in more kind of, you know, I guess progressive plans, I would say, are smaller plans that are maybe looking for um, with the younger investors that only see that vehicle as something be important. So I think it's a mix, um, and I think the marketplace is definitely shifting towards ETFs, but there's not going to be a, a windfall of assets coming over from the 401k space. Sonia, just a, a few minutes left here. Just given, given your role, I wanted to be sure to ask you about active, uh, non- or semi-transparent ETFs. And the way that I would set this up for you is, uh, you know, look, these had a lot of attention a, a couple of years ago. I feel like momentum has dwindled a, a little bit here. And, you know, the original thinking was with, with a structure, and actually there are several structures, but in general, the thought was this structure would allow a lot of old guard active mutual fund companies to bring their strategies to market without divulging their secret sauce, right? They get all the benefits of ETFs, but they can uh, cloak their holdings. They don't have to disclose daily. But if I look at some of the uh, launches, even this year, I mean, a firm like Capital Group, so long heritage and active management, they rolled out transparent ETFs. And there's plenty of examples like them where fund companies didn't use the the non or semi-transparent wrapper. Just just briefly here, what are you seeing in, in the space? Do you think there's still a path to success for, for non or semi-transparent ETFs? Absolutely. And I would point to two things, access and the types of strategies they can bring to market under the current semi-transparent or non-transparent wrapper. So access, I don't think you've seen, um, you know, the structures are still being approved at a lot of the regional uh, broker dealers, the independent broker dealers, the wirehouses. They are still working through that. They're only seeing, you know, one or two at some of the wires that have recently been, you know, kind of given the, the green light. So your access point with the custodial platforms where they are able to grow um, currently is limited. So I think it's limited uh, distribution uh, points of uh, kind of access right now. And as that opens up, you'll see uh, greater adoption. And then also, as we're talking to folks, you know, in, they, like you said, Capital Group, uh, you know, Putnam's another one. They uh, launched uh, semi-transparent. Um, they're under the Fidelity wrapper. They're also coming out with some new structures under just the true transparent. It's what you, you know, right now it's what domestic equity um, or U.S. equity that basically can do that. These players want to bring what they're 
experts in. And if they can't put it under that structure right now because it's limited, it's limiting what they can bring. So I think access in and kind of what what's kind of able to bring the market under the types of strategies right now, I, w- I would point to those two things. So I think there's still a lot of room to run. And, you know, we talked to Ed Rosenberg over at um, – American Century a lot. He's a great partner, and, and he's out there, you know, pounding the pavement daily. So I, I think you're going to continue to see um, some movement there. Okay, you mentioned the the term access. I can't help myself now, uh, even though we're running a little short on time. Just briefly, uh, talk more about the, the state of access overall. Gatekeepers, right? Like, how big of an issue is this where especially uh, smaller ETF issuers, they have an uphill battle to get their ETFs approved on various platforms. Is that still a big problem in, in the ETF space? Yeah, so I would say it's it's refreshing from the mutual fund where maybe you don't have to come for the demand on the custodial and clearing platforms. Every structure is going to be different if it's a you know an index, if it's an active transparent, if it's an active semi-transparent, where you're going to have those, um, you know, if you're going to have additional hurdles. But coming out of the gate, yes, it's allowed, you know, more folks into the game, but then the on the other side of the equation, the intermediaries are saying, okay, well, we don't need, you know, kind of a, a tidal wave of, of product. We need the right product that our clients are demanding. So they are starting to more formalize around, you know, what are maybe some requirements or is there time to market or certain characteristics around that. Still in the custodian clearing platforms, you're going to have a, an, you know, kind of a, an entryway, a soft entryway in, and that gives you a vast um, you know, navigation point with all the RIAs out there. But as you move to the regional broker dealers and, you know, kind of, you know, the Ray J's, the LPLs, you're starting to see that formalization around how do we bring product onto the platform and then the wires with, you know, we went through rationalization with, with mutual funds and, and SMAs. We're not going to do that with ETFs, so we're going to be more thoughtful as we're moving through. So it gets more complex, but I definitely think there's still a runway for good product who, you know, the folks are bringing what is necessary in the marketplace and what people are demanding. Well, Sonia, we're going to have to leave it there. Again, just a fantastic perspective. I love talking ETF shop. No question, you know this stuff as well as anyone out there. Thank you for joining me. Nate, thanks so much for the time. I really appreciate it and loved uh, loved joining you this morning. That was Sonia Formato, Senior Director at ACA Foresight. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank our sponsor, Vanguard. If you would like to learn more about Vanguard's ETFs, you can visit Vanguard.com. Next week, I'll be joined by Mark Yesko, founder and CEO of Morgan Creek Capital Management. We're going to talk SPACs, crypto ETFs, should be very interesting. And then Sean O'Hara, president of Pacer ETFs, will discuss their uh, unbelievable ETF growth this year. They're actually the fastest growing ETF issuer so far in 2022. So we'll find out why. Until then, have a great week, everyone.